I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. In some ways, because I can do literally as much as I possibly can, and it's not always the best, you know, often I don't have the ability to do as good of work as what I could in Australia because we just don't have the equipment. But I know I'm doing the very best I can in every single circumstance. I think that makes it a lot easier to cope with seeing some of the more terrible things versus the alternative in Australia where you have the ability and the equipment to do really really good work but sometimes you just can't because you're in a business setting and the business dictates that unless something's being paid for you can't do it and so I think in some ways that's actually harder to cope with. Welcome to the podcast I am your host Annika. On the Liverbird Sailing Podcast I chat with awesome people who live work and travel on their sailboats. My guests are sharing inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This episode is for all the animal lovers out there, as I interview someone who has dedicated their professional career to helping animals in need, and she does all this while sailing from one community to another. I chat with an Australian veterinarian, Dr. Shetty, who is currently in rural Mexico doing both animal work and boat work, and she tells how she helps the local wildlife and cat and dog populations anywhere she visits. And by the way, all the work she does is entirely free of charge. Dr. Shetty also gives really good advice to anyone who is thinking about cruising with their pets, particularly in Mexico and Central America. This episode combines both animals and sailing, so what's not to love? I 
I have to confess that I have gone down the rabbit hole of watching your YouTube channel and browsing your Instagram, and I have so many questions. But before we get to all of that, let's bring the listeners up to speed as well, because you're not just a regular live aboard sailor. So please, let's get started by you telling us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name's Sheridan, but I'm often known by Dr. Shetty or Shetty. And basically, I run a um, volunteer veterinary project from my sailboat. So as I travel around on the boat, we do a variety of work, sometimes with wildlife, but often with domestic animals. And we provide all the veterinary care for free uh, to all the animals that need it. That sounds absolutely amazing. And where are you now? So we are currently in Mexico. Um, We've actually been here a lot longer than we were expecting because we've recently done a complete refit of the boat to get her all ready for her next venture as a veterinary veterinary sailboat. And what kind of boat is it? It's a Gamelin Madeira. It's a 1990. Um, There was only around eight of them made. So it's a 37-foot aluminium sloop. That is definitely a bit of an unusual sounding boat. I, with my very limited boat knowledge, I have not heard of that before, but it sounds like a really cool kind of expedition-y boat for your purposes. Yeah, definitely. It's um, The lifting keel is good because you can get into some very shallow areas, which is definitely useful. And the aluminium is a nice, a nice design, except when it has problems, which mine has had. <laughs> That's true of all boats. Exactly. The boat work is always there, no matter what kind of boat you have. So you're, you're currently in Mexico. Have you traveled further out in the region as well? Yeah, I, I actually bought the boat in Panama. Um, and so I've been slowly coming up the coast, um, stopping at Costa Rica, Nicaragua, El Salvador and Honduras. And since being in Mexico, because we have been somewhat um, stuck with the boat work for a while, we have also been doing some inland trips where we've been going by land to um, go and do some different veterinary work around the area. I know you did some really cool work back home in Australia and also internationally as part of your, shall we call it, uh, normal life. And uh, to an outsider, all that sounded pretty cool already. So I am curious to to hear why you decided to quit that job and start doing essentially the same job, but for free and abroad and while living on a sailboat. Yeah, so I I was working at a wildlife hospital in Australia, but while I was there, I was also doing work at the local small animal clinic. So it was kind of, that's how they were paying me was I would work um, hours at the small animal clinic and that's what I would get paid for. And then the hours at the wildlife hospital were more or less done through a charity project. So I really found the change of going from being able to treat animals in the wildlife clinic without worrying about how much money the animal had and then going into the small animal clinic and having to turn patients away that I could treat but whose owners couldn't afford the treatment, I found that harder and harder. And I guess because I was doing both simultaneously, it was really made so obvious to me that the healthcare system for pets is not always um, ideal. So that's when I decided to go just completely into wildlife work because I, I kind of wanted to get out of the business of veterinary medicine and, and get more into, I guess, just the helping animals aspect. And so I was working in China for a bear rescue organization. And in China, bear bile is still used as a traditional medicine. So they actually farm the bile from the gallbladder in bears. And it's it's a pretty cruel um, system. And so 
we were rescuing bears from those farms and then rehabilitating them at a sanctuary. And it was really amazing work. But after two years, it also can get pretty heartbreaking because you're seeing some of the worst cruelty that can happen to animals. And we were also losing a lot of bears because obviously the problems, the health problems they have as side effects from the bear bile industry can be pretty ongoing. And so a lot of them were having to be euthanized or passing away from um, cancers and arthritis and other horrible things. So I was kind of ready for a change and felt ready to maybe take on my own project so that I could really make sure that my work-life balance was good and that I was taking on projects that I guess made me happy and that made me feel like I was helping. And my partner at the time um, was very interested in sailing and so we kind of thought, well, you know, we've already sold everything to be in China. Now is maybe the time while we're already minimalists to move on to a sailboat. And so, yeah, we found Chuffed in Panama and then just decided to do it. So it was somewhat of a whim. I hadn't really had any – I'd never been on a sailboat before Chuffed. I'd only been on powerboats. So I really had – kind of was jumping in the deep end. But, yeah. Yeah, okay. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, And, yeah, going back to the the bear experience and – Asia, I can imagine how that would be really difficult mentally and sort of emotionally because that is all human-caused suffering for animals. And I can imagine doing a couple of years of that, that anybody would want to have a break and you decided to take sort of a, a different direction with that, which is amazing. So I do want to ask you what kind of work you actually do, but now that you mentioned that you bought a boat without actually knowing to sail so how's the sailing going then <laughs> yeah um it's it goes pretty good it's funny because sometimes we get advice like on the youtube comments um you know and sometimes it might seem pretty simple like we had one guy tell us that we should be loosening the topping lift when we um are lifting the sail and we were never doing that. And then once we started doing it, we're like, wow, that does make things a lot easier. So, and yeah, that was after I'd had the boat for two years. <laughs> so um, definitely still learning on the sailing front, but it's, it's one of those things I think as long as you um, are safe in terms of choosing weather windows and all that, you can learn it um, on the fly somewhat. But <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a big learning curve and I, I was very lucky though. I, I seemed, I think I grew up at the beach and so I was around water all the time. And so I kind of took to it very quickly living on the boat. It wasn't actually as big of a transition as I had thought it was going to be. Right, right. And how long have you had the boat now? Um, I've had chuffed for four and a half years. So it's been a pretty long time now. It's, um, I always joke that it's the longest job I've held because it's um, the longest career I've stayed in. Yeah, that makes sense. Boat jobs, they will be the longest job you ever do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've mentioned that you work with animals. You touched on that you did wildlife work before. So what does this mean in practice now in Central America? Like, I'm sure you don't have a typical day in the office, but what kind of work do you do in the communities that you visit? Yeah, um, so like you said, it does depend on where we are and what the community's needs are. But generally what we try to focus on is spay and neuter programs and vaccination programs just because they tend to make the biggest long-term difference because you're either protecting animals from disease for a long time or in the case of spay and neuters, hopefully helping control uh, the population, which is really important in areas with stray animals. 
And the main reason we focus on that too is we're really big on the kind of One Health policy where um, animal health can really influence the health of the environment and then the health of the people in the area. So if you have sick dogs and there's a lot of them, a lot of strays that are unwell, those diseases can be passed on to wildlife in some instances or perhaps the dogs are killing wildlife and the cats are killing wildlife. And then, of course, human health can play a role where if you have a lot of diseased animals, then people can become diseased as well. And so that's kind of our goal is to help hopefully have a bigger effect on the community than just helping the animals, but by helping the animals. And another thing we really try and do is set up the local infrastructure. So if there's a local veterinarian or perhaps a veterinarian that's nearby who could come out more regularly, we try to kind of set them up with the tools to continue the work after we're gone so that rather than it just being one spay and neuter campaign and then we leave and it never happens again, hopefully we've set somebody up to continue doing that uh, for the years to come with the idea that hopefully over time there's like a long-term and bigger change in the area. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So it focuses a lot on sort of preventative and long-term health that hopefully has like well, longer-term effects then uh, in the whole community. I really like that idea of one health because it is all connected. If, you know, say there's a dog with rabies and then it goes on and kills somebody yeah. and then it moves on and, and on. So, and that's an extreme example, but uh, yeah, I'm sure there are other diseases like that as well. But do you work with stray dogs or do you work with pets or anything that's, that's there? Yeah. It, again, it depends where we are. Um, we have done work with stray animals before it's often a little bit harder because depending on how much of a stray they are, you know, just getting in contact with the animals can be difficult. But in a lot of areas of Central America, there's this kind of um, middle ground where the animals might be owned by somebody and they are cared for, for an, to an extent by somebody, but maybe they just live on the street and they go to two different houses to get fed and nobody truly owns them but you know so there's a lot of that so that's often the type of animals we're working with is kind of this middle ground where they're maybe not pets in the way that we would normally associate them with being pets but they are looked after by a particular family perhaps but we also do work with wildlife so particularly in Panama and Costa Rica where there is a lot more wildlife unfortunately in a lot of places north of there there just isn't as much wildlife because um, there's been so much development. Um, but Costa Rica and Panama have pretty good protection in place for wild areas. And so while we were there, I did a lot of work with sea turtles, um, but also with sloths and monkeys and a variety of other wildlife within at wildlife hospitals, but also worked with some of the local wildlife vets to try and help um, do some training with them on different things from, you know, surgical skills to how to enrich enclosures so that the animals don't get bored as easily. So we really kind of try to shape the work we do depending on where we are and the needs of the area we're at. So it's quite adaptive, but always with that thing in mind that we want to create a long-term solution. So if it's training their veterinarians so they can do what they asked me to do, then that's kind of a good solution. Or perhaps it's like I said, setting up a spay and neuter clinic and things like that. So that's kind of the main goal is this kind of more long-term solution to the problems, hopefully. Right. So not only you work with the animals, but you also work with the local people who work with the animals and, and get that part of the community involved as well. And, yeah, and exactly. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. That sounds great. 
Um, I'm curious, though, in those regions that you've mentioned, what kind of things keep you busy? I mean, you've mentioned, you know, spay and neuter already. So that's sort of the things that you plan. But what kind of issues do you commonly see in the local wildlife or the pets or the semi strays? Yeah, so so we also get a lot of kind of, I guess, emergency call outs. Uh, so for example, in Costa Rica, we saw quite a lot of sea turtles with fish hooks, um, you know, caught in their mouth or body. And for a qualified veterinarian it's actually quite an easy problem to solve if the if the hook is relatively close to the surface but they only have one big turtle hospital in Costa Rica and so basically in some cases they were transporting these turtles that just had kind of a fish hook in the you know in the top layer of skin eight hours to this hospital then they'd be there to get the surgery and then it would be eight hours back and so basically I started working with the local groups under the supervision and permission of the wildlife, uh, the turtle hospital further north to kind of do those more basic surgeries locally so we could just release the turtle a few hours later. And so that was kind of spur of the moment, just if someone found a turtle, I'd get the call. I also got call outs about emergencies for other wildlife. So for example, there was once an electrocuted um, capuchin monkey and he had um, broken his jaw in the fall and also had such severe burns that some of his fingers and toes had to be amputated. And so the local wildlife vet was really good. Um, she's really good with all the animals, but she doesn't have a huge amount of surgical experience. So she's really good with all the medicine and anesthesia, but not so much surgical experience. So she basically gave me a call and I went down and helped her with the surgical aspect and we ended up her, it, it turned out her boyfriend at the time was actually a human dentist. And so we consulted with him on fixing the jaw because a, a way you can fix jaws in animals is actually by more or less putting braces on the teeth so that it holds the jaw in place. And because he was such a tiny monkey, it was actually a good option. <laughs> so it was quite a funny little thing that we organized all together. But yeah, it's often, we do definitely get emergency calls. And then locally for pets, um, one of the most common emergencies we've been doing is cesareans. We get calls for cesareans quite frequently with the dogs here. So, Yeah, that's really interesting. And I love that there's a little bit of that sort of community. Um, like the communities must know you, that you're there. Do you stay a long time in one place? I know you mentioned now you've been stuck in Mexico for a while, but typically do you stay in one place for a long time so that people get to know you and, and that you get to do your work? Yeah, it Again, it depends what type of work we're doing, but I was in Costa Rica for about a year. So um, it's not a really, it doesn't have a really huge coastline. So the good thing with Costa Rica is no matter where you are, you can generally get to another spot within a day. So, you know, or maybe two days travel. So I'd worked with the local wildlife vets before and then they kind of kept me on their books, I guess, to call if, if needed. And usually we do try to stay for kind of like four to eight weeks in a spot with the idea that it does tend to take some time to put a project in, in place or in the case of the wildlife, whether it's doing training or just being there as kind of a backup. Yeah, like you said, you do need some time to kind of establish that trust and rapport and, and be around. So we try to kind of um, keep in touch with everybody we've worked with, you know, to, continue helping and perhaps one day go back if we ever turn around <laughs> and go the other way again so yeah that makes sense and that reminds me of one of your uh, youtube videos where you are like elbow deep in boat work and then i think there was a phone call that came in and there was a turtle uh with a fish hook 
uh, in its neck. So they must know that you're there if they got your phone number. <laughs> yeah, calling you. So that that makes sense that you would spend a fair bit of time in one place, and that is great. So. Another question that I had, because you're cruising in areas where a lot of um, actual cruisers might go with their own cats or dogs, and I'm wondering, do you have any advice or maybe a warning for anyone who is maybe thinking about, you know, taking their dog down from California to Mexico and stopping along the way? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really good idea to visit your dog or cat's vet and. Kind of stock up on some commonly used medicine. So I think it's really good to have seasickness medicine because dogs and cats and even birds can get seasick, and so um, that's very useful to just have on hand. And then it's also good to just have like you know a general anti-inflammatory and some pain relief, and then a very general antibiotic with the idea that if you're somewhere very remote, at least you can start to do something very basic to help your animal feel better. I think the other important thing too is just to um, kind of have some local resources in terms of veterinarians that might be near you locally. Um, often there's, you know, the expat forums and things like that for different towns and they're a really good place to look to try and, um, you know, find out if there's a good veterinarian in the area because like most areas, there's some very good veterinarians but there's also some veterinarians um you know, it's, it's not uncommon in Central America to have and Mexico to have veterinarians who are trained mostly in agriculture where they tend to do a lot more work with cows and maybe dispensing of kind of vaccines and medicines for cows and pigs and things like that. And they will still see dogs, but they might not be doing quite the right thing. So it's always good to just have a little bit of advice from your own vet perhaps about what should be happening at the vet clinic and what to expect. And obviously, I think learning some of the local language when you're traveling with your pet, well, for yourself too, but that's obviously very useful because communication, of course, is a big, big hurdle if it's um, when it comes to medicine. So, yeah. Yeah, those are really good tips. And of course, it makes sense that, you know, we here in North America would, you know, happily pay $700 to have our dog's teeth cleaned. But, you know, it's not necessarily the same mentality the further south you go. So the obviously training then, like you said, focuses there maybe on the bigger animals that have a different role in the society there. Um, and a really good tips about the expat communities as well. So probably a good idea to have sort of a list of potential vets on hand when you go go and start cruising for sure. Yeah, definitely. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So we talked about you doing the occasional surgery, uh, whether it's emergency or whether it's sort of spay and neuter. Do you rely on the local vets and clinics for all the medicine and all the supplies or such? Or how does that work if you keep moving along? Where do you get all the things you need to do your job? So we do have kind of a miniature veterinary clinic on the boat. So especially medicine that's not controlled substances, so things like antibiotics and anti-inflammatories, we carry that with us. So when I run out, though, depending where we are, some countries you can actually just buy medicine over the counter and you don't need to go any further than just going to the pharmacist and asking for what you want. But in other places, we I do use the local veterinarians to order order medicine for me. But I do carry most of the equipment myself. So I've got um, my own surgical gear, which I sterilize in a pressure cooker. So there's a method for sterilizing surgical equipment in pressure cookers. And I carry things like, um, you know, like fluid bags and bandages, the kind of you know, a stethoscope and things to look in the eyes and ears, all, all that kind of basic medicine I carry myself. And one of the big things that I stock is um, flea and tick medicine because that's of it, that's a really, really common problem in the areas. So it's kind of a bit of a mix. I, I order some things online. I get some things as donations from sometimes veterinarians in the United States have, you know, things that maybe have expired for one month and then we can still use them down here. Um, so that's really, really helpful. And then if people visit, we have them bring it in for us. Um, and then I do use the local vets to order extra things as well. And particularly for surgeries with anesthetics, I get those locally in the country. And I basically carry a um, my veterinary registration from Australia, as well as a prescription from a local vet saying that I'm carrying this to do spay and neuter clinics and things like that, just so that I kind of try to stay within you know kind of legal boundaries of what I can and can't have uh, which which differs from country to country yeah that's an interesting point um a couple of years ago I had a job where I worked for a small expedition cruise line that traveled internationally and I was responsible for stocking all the medicine for the infirmary and it does get pretty interesting when you're going from Europe to, say, Argentina, and there's a lot of countries in between, and you have to declare everything and exactly how, you know, when do they expire and how much do you have on board and what kind are you allowed to bring. So I can imagine traveling with uh, certain types of medicine would be a bit of a hassle. Yeah. Just a thought popped into my head. I was thinking about antibiotics and if somebody has their own sort of antibiotics with them for their pets. How long do they usually stay good? It depends on the medicine, but most medicines you can, particularly in the populations we're treating where it's um, often, you know, stray stray or partially owned dogs where they're not going to be getting any other treatment unless it's this one, I will use things usually up to around the six-month mark after they expire especially things that aren't liquid. So generally liquids tend to go bad quicker, but if it's a tablet, often you can still get good efficiency out of it after um, six months. So, Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. And another thing you mentioned, you mentioned flea medication. So that made me think of fleas, obviously in the local pet and stray population. And my mind goes to go in there with your own cat or dog. Um, is that something to be worried about? I'm obviously it's not life-threatening to if your dog or cat gets fleas, but is that something that would easily jump over to to from the local population to, to potentially your pet? 
Yeah, definitely. And although the fleas and ticks themselves aren't life-threatening, there are quite a lot of bloodborne diseases here that ticks in particular can pass onto the dog. So, for example, Ehrlichia is a blood parasite that more or less can kill the red blood cells and platelets. And so animals become anemic and they can actually bleed to death if they catch this. Um, and it's very, very common here. Something like 60% of the dogs we've tested have come up positive. So it's really, really common. So if your dogs are from an area where that doesn't exist and then they come here and they get a tick on them and they've never been exposed, they would definitely be at risk of getting quite sick from that. So using good flea and tick medicine if you're traveling with your pet is anywhere you go is a really, really good idea. Yeah, for sure. Okay, that will definitely go on the uh, to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) So I was watching one of your YouTube videos. It was an older one in which you uh, treated a chihuahua. Uh, was a cesarean and ultimately it did have a happy-ish ending because the mother survived and you know it would have died without your help but the puppies did not and you know I'm someone who's really sensitive to sort of seeing that kind of things and I'm wondering you probably have some sort of you know training or maybe you're desensitized to this but I am curious to hear like because you did mention working with the bears in Asia and China was tough but how do you deal with all of that because obviously you must see a higher number of sad cases in in such regular pets that you would see say back home in australia for even probably for entirely preventable preventable reasons or diseases and such so a a funny thing with with that story is is part of that is also choosing um how much to show on the on youtube to everybody else because that dog we actually had to um and this is pretty horrible but we had to actually cut the head off one of the dead puppies because it was so stuck that it was the only way to get the puppy out and obviously when you're projecting to a general audience that's a pretty intense thing to um, have on video and so we often do try to make it quite pg and perhaps we'll say what we did but not obviously show in any great detail because other than a trained veterinarian for most people that's you know kind of taking it to a pretty extreme level um so i do think being a trained vet you you do just become exposed to so many things that it it does make it easier over time but in some ways i actually find it i find i cope better here than what i did at home in that although i do see sometimes um perhaps worse things like that's something I've never had to do in Australia because generally the dog would have come into me sooner and it would never have gotten to that point the big difference is here with that dog it didn't matter that the owner couldn't afford the surgery that was why they waited so long they were scared about how much it would cost um and then when they found out that we would just do it for them they were like great okay and came in straight away um but they were even too afraid to ask for quite a few hours But then once she was with me, I was able to do literally everything I could to save her or the puppies. Whereas in Australia, in that instance, it might have been that I would actually have euthanized the mum because I would have said to the owner that either she needs a cesarean or she'll die. And the owner would have said, I have no money and I would have had to euthanize the dog. And so in some ways, because I can do literally as much as I possibly can. And it's not always the best, you know, often I don't have the ability to do as good of work as what I could in Australia because we just don't have the equipment. 
but I know I'm doing the very best I can in every single circumstance. I think that makes it a lot easier to cope with um, seeing some of the more terrible things versus the alternative in Australia where you have the ability and the equipment to do really, really good work, but sometimes you just can't because you're in a business setting and the business dictates that unless something's being paid for, you can't do it. And so I think in some ways that's actually harder to cope with um, and is the reason why a lot of veterinarians in, you know, in America, Australia and the UK, they do have quite a shortage and some problems keeping veterinarians in in their careers because I think the burnout emotionally from having to do that is really quite severe sometimes. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and I definitely did not think of it from that point. And obviously, you know, there's always the, the positive cases that, you know, you are literally helping animals that wouldn't maybe not have any other help otherwise or like you said, when you're helping people who couldn't afford it, and now you can do it. But that brings up an interesting question. So obviously, if they had gone to the local vet, and even if they had been equipped to treat them, they would have to pay for that. But you would do it for free. So are the local vets quite happy to have you around to help? Because uh, obviously, I'm sure they have their hands full anyway. So is that... Um, generally a, a positive relationship that you have? Yeah, definitely. Like in the case of that chihuahua, it was the local vet who called me to come do the surgery. So she had the dog with her and then called me to come do it. So I think generally I am very careful not to take paying clients from the vets. You know, if there's, um, you know, the, the animals I'm treating aren't coming from nice houses and, um, you know, <laughs> well cared for environments. And so I think the vets know that, it would either be I'm treating them or nobody was treating them. So I do think that's a really important point, though, is making sure you're not there, um, yeah, taking taking business or clients from people. But everywhere I've been so far, I always do have a good relationship with the local vets and talk to them about what I'm doing. And they've always been really, really happy for me to be there. And, for example, the local veterinarian here, when we first arrived, she didn't have a huge amount of experience with cat and dog medicine. She was seeing all the cats and dogs, but hadn't really had the training to do so and so we've worked with her a lot and done things like um, we actually bought all of the vaccinations for the vaccination campaign but had her be the one to physically do the vaccination campaign and so it meant that she was able to build a big clientele and and kind of build that rapport with the people in the town and the animals in the town again after a period of time where you know not as many people were going to the vet Um, so I think it definitely is really good to work as much as possible with the locals, local veterinarians and have them be kind of part of your, um, part of the project, I guess, as much as they can be. Yeah, for sure. And I love that there is that sort of uh, educational element to all that you do, that you are definitely sharing the knowledge and, and bringing everybody into who is sort of relevant to the community are, you know, still learning and developing their skills as well. But that brings up an interesting point then because all the work that you do, you do it for free. And you just mentioned you bought vaccinations, you got flea medications and such. So how do you keep going? I mean, you are literally doing a job that other people in other countries are getting paid for. So how is that? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, every Every job I've taken as I have gained experience where normally with every job you take as a veterinarian you tend to increase your pay 
but because I've gone more and more uh, charity, I've actually decreased with every passing year. <laughs> but you know, it's it, that's not what it's all about. It's um, we basically have the YouTube channel and and the Instagram and social media, and through that, people find out about us, and then we direct them towards um, either one soft donation through PayPal or through our website or becoming a patron, which is how we get majority of the work done that we do. So patron is essentially like a monthly, for us it's a monthly subscription and people get some extras from that. Like we do live videos every week for our patrons that keep them up to date in real time with what we're doing. Um, sometimes we'll give them things like a little bit of extra information about an animal case, things like that. And that money because it is monthly and it's fairly steady, it really allows us to plan because we know we're going to get that each month and then we can kind of say, all right, well, this is how much we can spend on our animal budget this month, you know, to keep it all going. So thankfully we've managed to slowly, uh, it's, it was very, very slowly, but over time build a, you know, a really good um, community of people who believe in our work and um, really has now gotten to a point that we can, fairly consistently do animal work every month and not have to worry too much that we're going to run out of funding but particularly in the early phases when um you know we there was like 10 patrons or something like that I really was dipping into either my own savings for quite a long period of time or just having to really um do things cheaply so for example training is free you know it doesn't cost me to train somebody and so um you know in the early stages, I was probably focusing more on that kind of work, but it's really, really good now to be able to actually invest like we are where we can do the vaccines and spay and neuters and those kinds of things. Yeah, I think if there ever was a deserving patron account, it would most definitely be yours <laughs> because you. you are doing such amazing work and it literally is about saving lives. And I am very much an animal person, so I love all of that. But we've talked a lot about animals. You did mention at the beginning that uh, there's been some boat work happening. And I have seen in your videos, a big part of it is also obviously the, the boat part. Uh, the videos are not all about the animals, but about the life in general as a, as a liveaboard vet, essentially. So you seem to know a lot about boats. And you said you've had the boat for four years, but you kind of jumped into it without knowing a lot about sailboats. So have you just self-thought yourself about everything because you seem really knowledgeable in the videos you're fixing everything yourself <laughs> yeah no it has been I mean self-taught and definitely obviously other cruises are really helpful in a lot of a lot of situations you know um I've had a lot of help along the way with um you know people like the boat next door and you're having problems with something and you go up on deck and they're like what's going on and you, you know explain it to them they come over and show you something different you know so definitely um I've had a lot of help from people but it has been mostly self-taught and I definitely didn't expect um my my ex-partner who I got the boat with he knew a lot more about boats than me and so in that initial year I really kind of didn't um, I just focused on the vet work and not so much the boat stuff. And then when we separated and I took the boat on, I it was kind of an initiation of fire. The engine was having problems. Um, the, the shaft seal busted itself about two months after we separated and I had to um, learn very quickly what to, what to do. So, But I, I definitely am a big believer in that kind of what goes around comes around because I have been very lucky that when particularly bad things have happened on the boat, 
someone has been around who's known how to help me and has taught me a lot. So, um, yeah, so we've been very lucky in that sense. And my um, partner now, Jim, who's taken on the project with me, um, he also had never been on a boat. So between the two of us, we (laughs) have now done an entire refit and um, we finished our refit and we splashed and then we got about 90 miles to our next destination and our engine failed and we turned around and came back. And so we are now waiting on a new engine. So once we replace this engine, I would say we've done just about everything that can be done on a boat. So I'm hoping we'll, uh, yeah, we're, we're kind of experts now. <laughs> yeah, expert by necessity. But, yeah, you know, that's yeah. a great way to learn when you have no other choice. <laughs> you, you will be too, don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm, I'm gathering. I should probably start learning while I have all the resources and, and the great internet uh, at my disposal at the moment. So you have an aluminum boat with a lifting keel and oh, it sounds like a very cool boat. What are your plans? Where do you want to go with it? Where do you want to take both your work and the boat? Yeah, the the next plan is to essentially head up the coast of Mexico. So we're in we're very close to the Guatemalan border right now. We're about as south as you can go while still being in Mexico. Um, so our plan, if all goes to plan, we should have the new engine in October, which will work out well because hurricane season on this coast will be ending at the end of October. So the idea is that we can leave early November and start heading up the Pacific coast with the goal to be in the Sea of Cortez after a few months. And so we're, we're hoping to spend a bit of time in the Sea of Cortez because we want to continue with our projects of doing the spay and neuter and vaccination. But with the videos, we're also trying to uh, now do a little bit of almost nature documentary-esque videos as well with um, so that when we're not directly doing animal work, we can still be bringing some of that One Health animal-related um, content to people. So we're hoping the Sea of Cortez will be a really cool spot because there's a lot of towns that we can do animal work in, but there's also a lot of marine life and wildlife in the area. So we're really excited to get up there. But after that, we, we really don't have any plans. We tend to kind of decide as we go. Um, we always talk about the Galapagos. We talk about going through the canal. We talk about crossing the Pacific. <laughs> so we'll probably decide that as, as it gets a bit closer. Yeah, all of that sounds amazing. And that's the great part about living on a sailboat. You can literally go wherever you feel like. So yeah. that's perfect. Well, do you tell everybody where can we support your work and also follow along on your adventure to see uh, what's next for you guys? Yeah, so um, on YouTube, we're under Chuffed Adventures, Vet Tales Chuffed Adventures. And our website is www.vettails.com, Tales is a kind of play on word with the tail of a dog, you know, of <laughs> tails. And then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook under Dr. Shetty, the sailing vet. And generally, if you type sailing vet into Google, you should find me because there's not many of us, if any. So um, it's, easy, it's easy to track me down. And I will definitely link all of those in the description. And I know there's also, you mentioned the Patreon. And I think on your website, there are links for one-off donations. So definitely go check all that out. I will put the links out there. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and tell us about your absolutely inspiring work. And I hope to see a lot more lovely animal rescue stories coming up our way on YouTube. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to share it all with you. 
Okay, that was a lot of talk about animals, which I absolutely loved. I am so grateful that there are people like Dr. Shetty out there helping animals who wouldn't otherwise get the care that they need. So definitely check out her YouTube channel or support her work in some other ways if you can. The links are all in the description. Next week's episode is all about a lifetime of sailing adventures, and any advice given in that episode definitely stands the test of time. I will give you one hint. Go simple, go small, go now. If you know who said that, you know it's going to be a great episode. I will see you again next Wednesday. Bye for now! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 